Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage your conference co-chairs, Jessica Gelman and Daryl Morey. And now, the Dean of the MIT Sloan School of Management, David Schmidlein. So uh, 
I had one staff guy who said, well, you know, we could do sort of an in-house poll. We'll kind of put this thing together on the cheap. I said, yeah, that's great. Let's find out. And we got some data and it looked very promising. Um, so I make the announcement, raise a little bit of money, and then hire an actual pollster who proceeds to tell me that the guy's got 90% name recognition, 70% approval, and 11 people, 11%, maybe it's just 11 people know my name. <laughs> and <laughs> I ended up losing by 35 for points or something. Uh, my lone uh, electoral loss, I got spanked. Uh, at which point I realized, you know, a good rule in politics is, is, is do the poll before you announce. <laughs> so that you know what you're doing. Um, so, so in politics, uh, we use data to evaluate where you put resources, uh, uh, how you should focus uh, your time and attention and personnel. Uh, and the same was true when, uh, when I was in the presidency. The, the one thing I think that is important, though, to, to recognize is that as valuable as the data was at any juncture in my political career, uh, the data is a tool, but it doesn't tell you what's important. It doesn't tell you uh, what your priorities should be. It doesn't solve problems in the culture of your organization if you aren't all steering in the same direction. And that's true in sports teams, that's true in political organizations, that's true in uh, businesses. Uh, so uh, we were always hungry for data, and part of what I do in the presidency was to structure any decision we had uh, around gathering as much and as granular as the database as possible. Uh, and that was true whether I was making a decision about uh, troop allocations in Afghanistan or decisions around saving the economy. But after all the data was in, uh, it was always uh, a set of values goals, priorities that were driving the data as opposed to the other way around. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you one specific example of this. Um, in the midst of the, the economic crisis, and uh, sadly, I, I'm now realizing that probably a large proportion of the people here were like eight. Uh, but we went through a very bad economic crisis. <laughs> <laughs> we actually contracted faster than uh, we did during the Great Depression. And when the month I was inaugurated, we'd lost 800,000 jobs. And one in eight homes were in foreclosure. And uh, unemployment was soaring, the financial system was frozen, and there was contagion and panic uh, across the board. And so we had to make a, a series of, of really big bets really quick with a bunch of imperfect information. 
Uh, and uh, one of those decisions was what to do about the auto industry. Because the big three automakers had uh, flatlined. They had already been in trouble from, uh, frankly, some bad management decisions, uh, not keeping up with the times, foreign competition. And so they were on the verge of bankruptcy, and this would have meant about a million jobs in the Midwest alone. And so we had to decide how do we intervene, uh, how do we help them restructure. And what the data said was that even in the state of Michigan, uh, the popularity of bailing out the auto industry was at about 10%. Right? So, uh, because at that time, people felt like bailouts had been given to the banks, and this and that and the other, and so even folks who were dependent on the auto industry were adamantly opposed to it. And it was important for us to know that because that was gonna shape how we rolled it out, how we messaged it, what exactly we were gonna say. But the data that I was looking at was what happens to the economy if, uh, if in fact, uh, the big three automakers go belly up. And, and, and I use that just as an example. Uh, I used to tell my team, I want a robust argument. I want to know all the uh, substantive data. I want to know all the political data. But the decision that I will make will be based on what we think is the right thing to do. And then that data can potentially help shape the how, the when, the what's. But it doesn't replace having a set of core values or, or uh, uh, a, a, a central mission that you're trying to accomplish. So you gave great examples of using your intuition and using data to make decisions. But you have inherent biases. So how do you ensure that you have a diverse enough perspectives in the people that you're listening to? And how do you make sure that they're the underserved, the underserved voices were included in, in your decision making? Well, you know, get, getting diverse voices around you isn't hard. It, you are intentional about it. Uh, and we, if, if there's an organization that says, ah, oh, this is, it's so hard to get diverse points of view, well, no, man, you're just not trying. <laughs> you, uh, I'm in the middle of writing uh, about the presidency, and, and so I'll, I'll give an example that I've just been writing about, and that is that I had been elected in part because very early on uh, I had uh, opposed the decision to invade Iraq. Uh, you guys were three. I think. <laughs> um, and, and as a consequence of the fact that it played out as I had predicted and anticipated, uh, I, it, it gave me a credibility and a voice within the Democratic Party and uh, attracted a lot of young people who uh, were troubled by the war. Uh, 
And it is true that, although I think the image of me as this you know, peacemaker, kumbaya guy was always overstated and inaccurate, um, you know, my bias tends to be towards diplomacy and multilateral actions, and I think war should be a last resort uh, and, and well-defined. But after I was elected, uh, one of my first decisions was to ask Robert Gates, who was then George Bush's Secretary of Defense to stay on for another two years. And Robert Gates is a Republican. He had been a Cold War hawk. He was one of the pillars of the national security establishment, had been the director of the CIA, uh, and was the defense secretary of the president whose decisions I had criticized as part of the basis of my campaign. And I asked him to serve in part because we were still in the midst of two wars and I thought it was important to maintain some continuity, particularly because I was still dealing with this uh, economic crisis. But part of it was I wanted to make sure his voice was there to counteract potential biases or, or the lens through which I might look at every foreign policy problem. Um, and I think having the confidence to want as many viewpoints as possible around the table, as long as they are bound by a certain set of norms, values, uh, uh, are committed to a process of figuring out what is true or the best option, as opposed to uh, being obsessed with status or who wins the argument. Um, if, if you have enough confidence to put yourself at the center of that discussion, then you're going to have better outcomes. And, and, and this, I guess, is relevant to the decision-making I was making generally, but I think it's is more broadly applicable. Um, one of the interesting things about the presidency is that uh, nothing, no decision would ever come to my desk, for that matter, no issue would ever come to my desk uh, if the answer was obvious. Uh, the reason it got to me was because nobody else could figure it out. If somebody else could figure it out, it would have been solved somewhere down the pipeline. And so what that meant is, is that any decision I'm making, by definition, uh, I'm dealing with imperfect information, potential unintended consequences, uh, and I'm working probabilistically. Right? So when I make a decision about the auto bailout, that decision, uh, I'm making a calculation of all the various outcomes I have. This has a 70% chance of working, which means 30% chance it is a disaster. But if I can get to a 70% decision versus a 50% decision, that's 
important. I won't know that unless I've looked at all the various options, and I won't know that unless I've got uh, every voice represented. Um, one last observation I'll have about that table around which I was sorting through choices and, and, and our team were, was making decisions. Um, I think one of the challenges we, uh, I had was not having outstanding women around the table. I didn't say that right. I had outstanding women around the table <laughs> in making these decisions. Early in my administration, what I found is that guys are loudmouths and oftentimes brilliant women would not always share their perspectives around the table in the same way or as aggressively or talk over people. Um, and I, I think that that's not unique to women. Sometimes that's true for uh, you know, minorities. At times it had just to do with status and Washington tends to be a you know, status town. Um, so, so one trick I had was I, I would call I, I would call on people. I I wouldn't just wait for folks to volunteer uh, because if if you wait for who's talking the most, then it's going to be the same folks over and over again. Um, in fact, I, I would make a habit of you know if you had a, a big table around the cabinet, you know, in the cabinet room, you got some big oak shiny looking thing and it looks very presidential. <laughs> and, all, and all the people are sitting at the important uh, chairs with big high leather seats. Um, and then on the outer rim, you've got all these staffers. That's what they're called, staffers. And you know, they're busy with notes and binders and stuff. Um, they have all the data. Um, so I made it a habit of calling on these people on the outer rim because I knew they were doing all the work and then writing the memos for the people on the inner table uh, who would then explain it probably inaccurately. Um, but, but, but that's what I mean about being intentional about if in fact you want a broad set of voices, you will get them. And in, in today's culture, if you are not uh, deliberately doing that, then you are going to fall behind and somebody's going to beat you in whatever it is that you're trying to do. And that's, that's true in politics, that is true in business. If, if, if you, uh, in today's marketplace, and, and, and you're trying to sell sneakers, and you don't have somebody who has a kid who knows what it is that somebody's going to buy, uh, you're you're not going to you're not going to do any good. If, if if you don't have a woman's voice, who uh, is speaking to the majority of people who buy things, you will lose. And, and, and I, I think that's a, that's a mistake people still, think, still tend to make. There is this sense of that somehow it's, it's charity or political correctness. No, it's just 
it, it's uh, it's common sense. It, 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 it'd be the equivalent of, it, it's the same thing that happened in baseball. If you, <laughs> it's really good if you get black players. <laughs> or Dominican players, or, you know, Japanese players. Um, turned out Bill Russell was a really good hire. <laughs> and that, those organizations that did not hire Bill Russell got walloped for a long time. So uh, what is true in sports is true more broadly. You mentioned the characters, values, and norms of the people around that decision-making table were critical. And you once said that you can understand, we have a lot of basketball fans in the audience, obviously. You once said you can, you can truly understand uh, someone's character by playing them in a game of basketball. Can you tell us more about that? Well, l l let me amend that. Because I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, I have known some wonderful people who are just terrible on teammates on a basketball court, <laughs> but are good parents and, you know, surgeons and make contributions to society. It, 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 so it's great. That you just don't want to pick them on, on your team. Um, I, a, a couple of things I would say, though, is, number one, I do think that uh, playing basketball with someone uh, gives you good insight into people's self-awareness. I, I, I remember we used to have regular pickup games, and uh, we played one time with uh, a, a well-known uh, singer, well-known musical artist. Uh, you know, and he was a brother, and he, you know, came in. He had an entourage. We took off the stuff. And, you know, balling. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy was terrible. <laughs> terrible. Uh, his shot was broke. You know, he was like dribbling. And, he, and he, he took like 25 shots. Made like four of them. Right? And this isn't a, this isn't a, you know, the game's to like 21. Right? So there, there are only 30 shots to be had. Terrible. Uh, and you could tell both that, A, this guy has no self-awareness. He does not know he's terrible. He thinks he's good. Number two, he only surrounds himself with people who tell him he's good, even though he's terrible. Um, so that's one thing. I do think it, it reveals self-awareness. That, what, what is also true is that, um, and, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize, um, because, because basketball is a team sport, so I think this would apply more broadly to a lot of team sports. Um, and then, just, you know, you, you're a much better athlete than I was uh, in, in the day, and probably still. Uh, so I, I, I think you'd confirm this. And, you, you can tell when somebody is putting team first. Uh, uh, you, you can tell whether they are prioritizing the efforts of the group and are trying to fit their skills into 
the success of the group. And I do think that that is a principle that I pay attention to. So one of the things I'm proud of in my administration was the fact that, and, and I think these things are connected, uh, we didn't have a scandal that you know, uh, embarrassed us. There were mistakes, we'd screw up, but there, there wasn't anything venal during eight years, and that's, I know that seems like a low bar, but if you look at, <laughs> <laughs> you look at the presidency, that's no, no small thing. about a lot of drama inside our White House. You know, and that was also rare. Right? And, and part of it was that, it's not that there weren't strong personalities, there wouldn't be arguments, there, there wouldn't be deep differences, partly because we were bringing together a bunch of different kinds of folks uh, around the table just to try to deal with really tough issues. Um, but I did have a strong bias towards people who just wanted to get things right, get things done, as opposed to people who were obsessed with, uh, I want to be right, I want to be prominent, I want to uh, have my you know, name in the headlines. And if, if you can create that culture, then, you are more likely to be successful. You know, look, it's not, it's not the only answer. You need talent. You need good ideas. You need all, all kinds of stuff. But, um, but if you give me a basketball team that has that, then I like our chances. And I don't care how much talent you have. If you don't have that, then they're, they're going to underperform. So you obviously learn a lot about people from how they play, and clearly you're an incredible leader. Who was the greatest coach or mentor that you ever had, and what was an important lesson that they taught you? That's interesting. Look, I, I, was, a, uh, I was a high school basketball player of limited talent who... That's not what I hear, by the way. Oh, uh, well... Um, I mean, part of it was because I was, um, I enjoyed myself too much in high school. Uh, to be as dedicated as I should have been. Let me put it this way, if I had been really focused, dedicated, obsessed, I, I probably could have been a bench warmer on a mediocre Division I team, like a walk-on kind of guy. All right, so, so I'm a, that, that, that's sort of my level. Um, and, uh, and, and I grew up in Hawaii, uh, and, and our, our school, we ended up being the state champions uh, on the basketball team. Uh, we had a coach named uh, Chris McLaughlin, uh, a wonderful man. And uh, the reason he's probably the most important coach I ever had was because he actually solved the problem or, or, or didn't solve it for me, but identified the problem I just referred to, which was I had a lack of self-awareness and I was more worried about me. So he didn't start me uh, on our team. And I, I, 
kill some of the starters one-on-one, -on -one. or if we were playing a pickup game. So I kept, it, I was just picked off, and I was not starting. And uh, what he explained to me, and eventually I came to realize in retrospect, was that um, he was right not to start because when I'd get on the court, I'd be doing, I'd be dribbling and throwing behind the back passes. And part of it, I understand now why. I, I grew up without a dad. I had learned the game on the playground. I didn't have coaches. We didn't have AU back then. I'm so so. So for me, basketball was a refuge and uh, a, a way to work out. my own youthful issues. Uh, and he wanted a team that was going to be disciplined and was going to win. Um, so, so I think for me at least, it wasn't so much the, uh, the lesson of uh, great success, but rather the lesson of humility that ended up being uh, being most important. We have a lot of young, aspiring, uh, hopefully future executives, leaders in the audience. No doubt. <laughs> I can look at them. They're the sharp group. And, and one of the criticisms that folks like in this audience, audience face is they're young, they're inexperienced, they didn't play the game, so how can they be part of this? And you. I feel like you faced some of those same criticisms as a young president. You know, how did you handle that? Well, look, I, I, I do think that um, there, there is there's great virtue in, in youth, and, and there are issues in youth. And you, and you just, this goes back to the self-awareness issue. Um, you know, the young people who are here uh, have the benefit of extraordinary energy and fearlessness and a willingness to look at things in new ways. And that is the lifeblood of our society, our economy, and it's what keeps us moving forward. Um, I think the, the, the dangers of youth are obvious, which is uh, you don't yet know what you don't know. And uh, the fearlessness can tip over into recklessness or uh, not making decisions based on uh, complete information. Uh, wh what I found is that uh, what was what was most valuable for me was to a make sure that I was surrounded with people who would tell me when I was wrong at every stage of my career, even pre-presidency. Uh, number two, getting in the habit of evaluating 
failures and successes and thinking about what is it that I could have done better. Uh, number three, not being afraid to reach out and work with or partner with or ask advice from uh, people who knew more than you. And, 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 I, and, and that requires overcoming a certain amount of insecurity that sometimes comes with being here. Um, but, but one of the things that um, I, I think helped me a lot across the board, <coughs> certainly helped me during the presidency, is I was never afraid to have people in the room who were smarter than me and then ask them, Explain this to me because I I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, which, by the way, as an executive, is a really good trick because what you'll find <coughs> is that most people don't like to admit if they don't understand something. So they'll sit there and make bad decisions because they didn't want to just say, huh, that doesn't make any sense. And when you ask and they start explaining it, Sometimes it'll turn out that yes, it doesn't make any sense. But somebody has a title, or they're, you know, they've been doing it this way for a long time, or and, and um, you know, a specific example of this would be uh, making decisions around troop deployments in Afghanistan. I, when I came in, Afghanistan was in some ways in worse shape than the Iraq war was. Um, I hadn't served in uniform. I'm sitting with a bunch of generals. I've got David Petraeus and Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And uh, my predecessor, I think, had made a habit of saying, I'm gonna do what the generals said. But, my understanding of the Constitution was is that there, uh, under our form of government, uh, you have civilian control of the military. And my job was to get the very best advice and intelligence from the people around that table, but ultimately I was going to have to make decisions, which meant I had to understand what it is that they were trying to do. And I, we went through a review process of several months that was subject to all kinds of criticism uh, because, oh, Obama's dithering or he's not, you know, there's a stereotype of you know, be decisive, he's being too professorial, he's asking too many questions, this and that and the other. Um, but of course, I was making decisions about sending 20, 22-year-olds into a place where their legs might get blown off or they, they might uh, be paralyzed because uh, of a shot in the spine. And at the end of that process, every one of the generals who I sat with acknowledged that we had arrived at a clearer sense of what our mission was and how we were going to do it, and we had increased our chances for success. But that required me being in a room and saying, I'm sorry, you just used a bunch of acronyms and this and that and the other. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, 
And, and, and I think that is as good of a, a lesson for a young person who's uh, finding themselves in some sort of position of potential leadership, um, is, is having that confidence, not to sound like a know-it-all, but having the confidence to get information from people who have greater expertise in certain things. Well, along those lines, during your administration, you built strong ties to technology innovators like Twitter and Facebook, which you know, now are receiving quite a bit of backlash. What, what responsibility do they have well, look, we were early adapters. I, I, I would not have won probably the, the 2008 primary and, and general election had it not been for the fact that we were able to mobilize uh, volunteers, mostly young people, all across the country, raise money, or essentially crowdsource all across the country. Um, we were using this thing called MySpace back then. Uh, again, you guys were poor. Um, and uh, Meetup. And, and I was fascinated by the potential for uh, linking people and creating communities uh, at a speed and in a, uh, at a depth that would have been unimaginable uh, just a few years earlier. Hugely powerful potential force for good. And I continue to believe that is the case. But what is also true is, is that our social media platforms are just that, they are a tool. And ISIS can use that tool. Uh, neo-Nazis can use that tool. And so uh, I do think that the large platforms, Google and Facebook uh, being the most obvious, uh, but you know, uh, Twitter and others as well are part of that ecosystem, um, have to have a conversation about their business model that recognizes they are a public good as well as a, uh, a commercial enterprise. They're not, they're not just an invisible platform, uh, but they're, they're shaping our culture in powerful ways. And the, the most powerful way in which that culture is being shaped right now is the balkanization of our public conversation. This was already happening in the, with the advent of uh, talk radio and cable. So it precedes the internet. Uh, it has accelerated with the internet. But essentially, we now have uh, entirely different realities that are being created. Uh, with not just different opinions, but now different facts, uh, different sources, uh, different uh, 
different people who are considered authoritative. Uh, it's, it's you know, to, since we're at MIT, to throw out a big word, it's, it's like epistemological. It's, it's a baseline <laughs> issue. Uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the famous senator from New York, once said, he was in an argument with, he, he was very smart, and his, a colleague of his wasn't as smart, and Moynihan was not shy about letting him know that the other guy wasn't as smart. Uh, in an argument they were having about some issue, and the other guy got flustered and said, ah, yeah, Senator Moynihan, uh, that's, that's just your opinion, I have mine. And, and Moynihan said, sir, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. But today, part of what's happened with social media, and this is not just, by the way, Russian-inspired bots and fake news. This is Fox News versus uh, the New York Times uh, editorial page. If you look at these different sources of information, they do not describe the same thing. In some cases, they don't even talk about the same thing. And so, it is very difficult to figure out how democracy works over the long term in those circumstances. You and I can have an argument about climate change in which you conclude, look, we're not gonna stop you know, the Chinese and the Indians from burning a bunch of coal. It's gone on for a pretty long time. We're just gonna have to adapt. Uh, and maybe we'll invent some new energy source in the nick of time, uh, and that's why I'm opposed to the Paris Accords. And I'll come back and I'll say, well, no, you know, it turns out that if we just invest in some smart technology and we create a, a smart uh, regulatory framework that incentivizes investment in clean energy, we can actually solve this problem now, and if we don't, it's gonna be catastrophic. We can have that argument in our democracy and through the marketplace of ideas, maybe it arrived at, a, a, if not an optimal answer, at least a better answer than either of us could have come up with by ourselves. But I can't have that same debate with somebody who just holds up a snowball in the middle of the Senate chamber in winter and says, look, there's no climate change because it's snowing. <laughs> Which happened, by the way. <laughs> I didn't just make that up. So, so if we don't have a, a, at least a common baseline, then our democracy over time gets profoundly strained, and that's what happened. That, that's what's happened. Uh, and, and so, when, when we reflect on what, why are we seeing so much gridlock and venom and, and polarization in our politics, it's partly because we're, we don't have a common baseline of, of facts and information uh, other than the Super Bowl, <laughs> no, Mr. Kraft. Um, so uh, that's the only thing we watch together at the same time. Now what to do about it is complicated. The Chinese have one solution, which is Government controls the media, it censors things. 
that's not who we are, and that's not the society I want to live in. What it does mean, though, is that uh, we have to have a serious conversation about what are the business models, the algorithms, uh, the mechanisms whereby we can create more of a common conversation. And that cannot just be a commercially driven conversation. And, and, and by the way, um, it's, it's not, um, it's not as if, from a just pure market perspective, you know, having duopolies controlling these platforms is necessarily healthy for innovation. So, um, you know, so I am a huge admirer of, of uh, what Facebook and Google and uh, some of the other really big platforms have accomplished. They, uh, they have created enormous opportunities, uh, and uh, those opportunities are even more promising down the line. But but I, I always try to remind people uh, that capitalism works and our marketplace works because there are some basic rules of the road in place that create level playing fields that ensure people aren't defrauded, and so as a consequence, you can have a national or an international marketplace of trust that you know, new ideas can bloom and not just be crushed right away. Uh, that there's some guardrails against anti-competitive behavior. All, all those things make the market work for everyone. And, and, uh, and I think that this is going to be a space in which we have to have a, have a significant conversation about. Thank you. It was very insightful. We're going to switch it up or a little long, bit. Or long, at least. It's a long <laughs> answer. Wow. <laughs> so we're going to switch it up a little bit and talk a little bit of basketball. So I, This was getting way too serious. <laughs> yeah, we're going to pick it up. All right, what do what, what, what we got? We're gonna, so, for very obvious reasons, I'm going to ask this question. Um, you're an NBA All-Star. You're a free agent this offseason. Every team is offering you the max contract. Which teams would you choose to meet with in free agency and why? This is, a, this is an outstanding fantasy. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just basking in the... In, in the scenario, um, well, look. I, I, first of all, I've got to be careful because there are a bunch of uh, uh, friends of mine who are owners or part owners of teams. So you're an all-star. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> but, but then I'm not. <laughs> uh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, but, 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 but here, here, here's what I would say, which I think is a safe response. <laughs> um, I, I think it's fair to say that there are uh, organizations in the NBA or the NFL that may not win every year, but have created the kind of culture 
that I was referring to earlier. They're smart, they're well run, uh, they're focused on team, uh, they treat everybody in the organization with respect, and uh, that is the kind of organization that I would want to be a part of. And I, so I will, you know, uh, uh, I will say that over the last 15 years in basketball, San Antonio would be a great example of that. Right? I, I, it, uh, there's a little drama popping up right now, but who has the second best record for that? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I chose San Antonio because I figured it would. No, but 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 if you look at what you know uh, they've built, it, it, it's a it's a, a, just a smart, well-run operation with a good culture that takes not just all-stars but people nobody saw coming and molds them into uh, just a, a great team. I, I will say, since Daryl's sitting right next to me, that you know you have organizations like the Rockets and the Warriors and Boston uh, that are where you're seeing that same culture being built, um, I, I and I, I guess the, you didn't say in the scenario whether I was going to be the best player on the team <laughs> or the second best player. Um, but but part of that culture does seem to depend on uh, the best players having the right uh, ethos, the right work ethic. Uh, you know, people gave Duran a hard time joining the Warriors, but the truth is, is that it worked because both Kevin, but probably even more importantly, Steph and Clay and, and Draymond, uh, they're team first guys. And so they were willing to say, all right, I'm going to give up some shots and you know, I, I'm going to think differently about my role. Same thing with Chris. Uh, you know, one of my favorite people, uh, Chris Paul, uh, went to the Rockets. You know, Chris is a, at a stage in his life and his career and maturity where he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll be the number one guy where I need to be. Uh, I'll be the, the, the wingman when I, when I, uh, that's what's needed. So, so, and, and that part of the reason that uh, it worked for San Antonio was the best player, Tim Duncan embodied that attitude, right? Hall of Fame player, but, you know, if, if Popovich yelled at him, he took it because he understood he had a role to play. So, so that's the kind of setting I'd want to be in. That then I, I, I might win some rings. That was a harder one to answer, but you're such a fan of the game uh, and a student of the game. Uh, and a lot of this conference, over the next couple of days, it's not only analytics in my role, but even how to improve the game. Let's say you take over Adam Silver's job. I think Adam's doing a great job. <laughs> Let's say you take it over for a day. What, what's one thing you change about the NBA? Um, I, I, this, this is on my mind, I think, just because of uh, the morning's headlines. Um, 
and it's not it, it's not solely the NBA. Uh, the need to create a well-structured uh, D-League so that um, the NCAA is not serving as a farm system uh, for the NBA with a bunch of kids who are unpaid but are under enormous financial pressure. Uh, it's just not a sustainable way of doing business. And then when everybody acts shocked that some kid from extraordinarily poor circumstances who's got potentially five, 10, 15 million dollars waiting for him uh, is gonna be circled by everybody in uh, a context in which you know, people are making billions of dollars. It's, uh, it, it's not good. So I, I think that at, at minimum, one way of thinking about this would be what happens in baseball, right? Which is, if you're Bryce Harper or Aaron Judge, then you make that jump. Even if you're not ready for the big leagues immediately, at least you're going into, it is clear this is going to be your profession. You start getting paid. Organization is on the hook, uh, the, the professional organization. There's clarity. If you're not Bryce Harper or Chris Bryant, then you go to college but you're signing up for a certain amount of time. And, and you know, I, I think that if you get, that, that won't solve all the problems, but what it will do is uh, reduce the, the hypocrisy and the likelihood uh, of sort of people being like Claude Rains in Casablanca and walking in and saying, I'm shocked that there's gambling going on. Uh, and, and, and these kids who who's generally are not, uh, don't have a lot of resources, um, are able to help their families. And, and by the way, it's not as if college basketball goes down the tubes because of that. You look at Villanova or Virginia, I mean, there are programs where it's not as if they're getting the top 10 guys, they're well-coached teams, it's exciting. I, I'm still going to watch March, March Madness if, if uh, just because uh, some of the you know, guaranteed lottery guys are going into a developmental league or directly to the NBA. It, it, it's not as if there aren't going to be a whole bunch of terrific athletes who are competing, some of whom will be on track for the NBA. Uh, I mean, there will still be the Steph Curry at Davidson, who amazes you, and, or, or Russell Westbrook, who's, you know, on, not the, even starting at UCLA. Those guys are still gonna be there in college, and the NBA is still gonna be looking and scouting, but, but there will be some sense that it's fair for the players, 
by the way, it would make for a better dealership, right? You could actually, you know, uh, commercialize that. So, so that's that, that's what I want. Last the last question. Oh, make it a good one, Justin. I know, I'm nervous. Last year, we saw protests by the U.S. women's hockey and soccer teams surrounding pay equity. You fought for pay equity as president. What if we not tried that we should? Uh, well, the truth is, is that we, we tried to not just set up rules, but pass it laws through Congress that would uh, force the issue of pay equity. Um, women are still getting paid less than men for doing the same job. And we see it in sports, we see it in every aspect of life. You will hear that um, that if you adjust for the life choices that people are making, then it's not as stark as you would think. You know, mom's deciding she wants to stay home for a couple of years, and then that means that she's slightly slower on the fast track. Well. That too is part of the problem because we don't have childcare and we, we don't have a family-friendly set of laws in terms of family and parental leave. So there, there are things beyond pay equity that we could do. Um, in this current environment, it is unlikely probably that we get a congressional law of, uh, of, that could at least force more transparency, by the way, because, because one of the things, one of the first in fact, the first bill that I actually signed in the White House was called the Lilly Ledbetter Act, named after this wonderful woman named Lilly Ledbetter who had worked in a factory and for a long time, over a decade. And then she found out that the Jamoke next to her had been making 15, 20% more than her the entire time. But because the employer was not obligated to uh, be more transparent about pay. She, she couldn't, uh, she tried to sue when she found out and then there was a court opinion that said the statute of limitations has run out even though you didn't know that you were not being paid. So, so some, of, some of this is transparency and, and greater information. It, it, in the absence of new laws, uh, my hope it would be that all these young people who are aspiring entrepreneurs, executives, uh, leaders, uh, that all of you will start now to embed the principle that uh, you, you treat people on the merits and that and, and that your business over the long term will be stronger and you will attract more talent and you will perform better if you have a family-friendly environment and 
you have a, a, a very clear principle that we're going to treat people based on uh, on what they can do, uh, how they perform, uh, and not what they look like. And the, the good news is, is that is a ethic and a value despite some of what we're hearing right now uh, around the country. Uh, if you talk to young people, that is something that they uh, feel and believe in more deeply. Uh, I don't think there's any young woman here, uh, certainly if you talk to my daughters, the idea that somebody pay them less, they'll smack you across the head. Uh, and, and so uh, let me speak to the men in the audience. Um, you should be smacked across the head if you think that, uh, that, that women should be, be paid less. And, and, and I just want to emphasize what is, it is not just the pay, it is also the kind of environment we're setting up at work. Because uh, you know, uh, we have, like most societies, for a very long time, uh, uh, relied on the unsubsidized, unpaid labor of moms to take care of kids. Uh, but uh, gentlemen, they are your children too. And so, if, if you're not, if you're not unconcerned uh, with uh, your wife being held back from her career because there's no daycare or maternal leave or any other policy uh, that makes it possible for her to juggle these things, in addition to you doing some diaper changing yourself, um, then uh, you, you are neglecting your obligations as a father. Uh, and if, if you're unconcerned about that as a boss, you are neglecting your obligations as a boss. Um, and, and it turns out it's not that hard to do. Uh, well, even in the White House, which is the most brutal environment you can imagine, uh, you know, one misperception people have about the public sector, at least at, at the top levels of the federal government, people work harder than the private sector. I mean, I tell you, when I came out of the White House, everything looked like it was in slow motion. It felt like I was Neo in the Matrix, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so our, our folks were putting in 80-hour work weeks and, you know, barely getting vacations a lot of times and, and under unimaginable pressure. But we set up policies that, that, that you had a child, you had, uh, you had a parent-teacher conference, you had the things that needed to be done to raise, raise somebody. Um, that was part of the deal. Um, and, and, and the private sector has to step up uh, because it's, it's smart business. The data shows it. <laughs> well, on, on behalf of MIT Sloan and uh, the student organizers, um, Really, thank you so much for today. Had a great time. Thank you so much.